Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Thank you for joining us for the Prairie Times. My name is Heidi Pate. Our first story is by Charles Oz Collins called Cream Catcher. Cats were as much a part of milking time as cows. Understand, these were no lap cats, no pick-me-up-and-scratch-my-chin cats. We had barn cats born on our farm that never felt a human touch, or if they did, it was probably the cat that did the scratching. A small gray female, simply known as Granny, mothered and led our pack of cats. The name denoted both how long she'd survived and the fact that two generations of offspring often accompanied her. If you showed up in the barn, morning or evening, with a bucket in your hand, cats seemed to materialize as though by magic. By the time we locked the cows in their stations, the cats had gathered just beyond the back fence of the milking stall. It was not human companionship they sought, but fresh, warm milk. Begging was simply beneath Granny, who would sit patiently near the cat's pan, knowing that eventually I'd finish and share with her. Some younger cats, be they her kids or grandkids, were not so refined. A considerable yowl might accompany the stream of the sound of streams of milk ringing in the bucket. It's in the nature of boys to shoot things, at least farm boys. And when you found yourself with two fists full of automatic liquid ammunition, all you lacked was a target. Your brother's back or cap were one option, but brothers could be short on patience and long on retaliation. One had to consider if it was worth it to drench your co-milker when he too was fully armed. That left the cats. The most fun was when Granny had hauled out her newest litter out of the granary to meet the people who twice daily chore was to provide milk for her. She never brought forth her latest pride and joy until they could scoot around and stay out of the way of the cows. Understandably, when kittens had their first encounter with living things other than granny or granary mice, they were skittish. It took a little to send such young cats airborne. And we boys had long since learned a strong jet of milk hitting the ground beneath a kitty's belly was akin to applying heat to popcorn. Veteran cats make bigger, slower targets, but all about the reaction one got was the cat backed out of range and groomed itself, an appetizer before the main course. However, some cats learned to catch the streams of milk we launched at them. Granny was one, but there were several others. They'd sit on their haunches facing the cow. If I was milking a Holstein or Guernsey, both of which had ample handles, it was possible to produce a stream of milk steady enough that it momentarily overwhelmed some cats when they tried to take a breath. 
the first half of the stream would disappear into the cat's open maw, but the second half would cascade off their face and down their chest. At that point, the average cat would retreat a few feet and indulge in a full-fledged lick bath, complete with vigorous ear and face polishing. Then there was Bud. He was half again bigger than Granny, but also half as bright. He observed other cats enjoying their antipasto, and I could see no reason to exclude him. I think another cat was feeding a mil- fielding a milk stream when Bud helped himself. The problem was that he was not facing the cow, but was crosswise to the jet of milk. Bud reached in to intercept the passing stream and caught a good portion of it in his right ear. I watched as he pulled his head back, but then tried again to grab a chunk of the next gush of liquid lunch. Now the ear was approaching capacity and a white stream was making its way down Bud's right shoulder. About two more midstream collisions with the milk and the young male calmly backed up to clean himself. He licked and polished and pawed and finished just in time to join his extended family at the pan. I figured with several good role models present, Bud would grasp the art of sitting head on and catching milk in his mouth. He never did. Time and again I'd practice my milk marksmanship on an unorthodox cat when Mr. Sideways would show up for his evening ear drenching. Despite his unique methods, Bud grew to an impressive size, and at least the right side of his head was usually well-groomed. When the last cow was out and all the cats fed, I'd hook the door, flip the light switch, and head for the house with a half bucket of Jersey milk. Whether hurrying across the yard on a wintry evening, or leisurely savoring the balm of a warm summer dusk, I'd make my way toward the glow of the kitchen's lights, but not without stopping to tip a bit of still warm milk into the dog's dish near the door. I didn't have to enter to know Mom was making her typically hearty supper and our family was about to gather around the table. It was a fitting end to another day's honest farm family work. Our next story is by Susan Davis called Beloved Home for Two Generations. In 1928, my paternal grandparents rented a small farm in northeast Colorado. The family ended up having 13 children, my dad being the fourth oldest. My aunts and uncles worked hard around the farm, but they also played hard. Fortunately, none of them ever sustained any serious injuries. On one occasion, they had their dad mighty scared. They nailed a basketball hoop to the side of the barn. Cattle and horses sometimes stood beside the building for shelter, and cow pies and horse manure were plentiful. But they made their area their basketball court. It sat near the road that entered their yard. One Saturday afternoon while playing basketball, they saw their dad headed their way, driving a truck full of straw. The kids stood there as the basketball rolled under the truck's back wheel with their mouths hanging open. 
terrified that he'd run over one of them, their father slammed on the brakes and leapt out to check. It relieved him to find only a basketball. They continued playing with an egg-shaped ball. The deformed basketball certainly made it more challenging to make baskets. Aunt Virginia remembers my father had a pair of ice skates that belonged solely to him. He loved skating whenever and wherever he could. Unbeknownst to him, one day his sisters confiscated them when he wasn't around. They went down to the pasture where there were several ponds of ice. The skates were far too big for them, and they couldn't get the hang of the sport. After a few falls, they put his skates back where they had found them. My dad never suspected a thing, and they weren't about to tell him what they'd done. In 1957, my grandparents retired and moved into town. That's when Dad moved his family to the boyhood farm. Like his father, he rented the land from the same family, just a different generation. My parents ended up raising ten children in the same house. Not much changed from one generation to the next, except farming practices became more modern. Like my aunts and uncles, my siblings and I worked and played hard. None of us ever got seriously hurt, but we earned some nasty scars from unforeseen accidents. One evening we were playing hide-and-seek, and my older sister crouched down behind our sugar beet thinner. She saw her chance to make it home to home base. Without thinking it through, she hurtled over the thinner and tore a wound on her knee. The game abruptly ended. My parents never took her to the doctor, and she ended up with a scar. For a while, my siblings and I enjoyed driving or riding around our farm in a dune buggy. A couple of our uncles built it out of an old car. It had no windshield or doors, just a bench seat, a roll bar, and a stick shift. On the day they brought the dune buggy to our farm, they had fun with their new toy. It surprised us when they left it at our place and said we could drive it whenever we wanted to. One beautiful fall Sunday, my oldest sister took me for a drive. We sailed along, headed toward the south end of our farm. She must have forgotten the cattle were roaming the fields, cleaning up after the harvest. A closed barbed wire gate kept them in the pasture. When she got close enough to see it, she slammed on the brakes. We came to an abrupt stop, the barbed wire gate staring us in the face. We avoided running into the sharp strands of wire by mere inches. If they had snapped, it could have seriously injured us. With our hearts in our throats, we headed for home. Besides a few other foolish incidents, as many, most of the time, we were responsible while driving it. However, we neglected to check the oil. Eventually, the engine ran out of lubricant, and sadly, that ruined it beyond repair. Just as our dune buggy days ended, so did my parents' farming days. They retired and moved into town. They held their farm auction on January 25, 1982, 
with plenty of bidders vying for their used equipment. Two generations of my family considered it a sad day. The place they'd called home for 56 years would now belong to a new family. Twenty-three children got to experience many wonderful things living on that small farm. None of us would have changed where or how we grew up. To this day, it's still my favorite home, filled with family, fun, laughter, work, and a lot of memorable experiences. Our next story is by Belle Schmidt called Aunt Inga's Yellow Suede Shoes. Dolly Parton had her coat of many colors, but I had Aunt Inga's yellow suede shoes. Our family may not have been as poor as Dolly's, but there are similarities. Dolly Parton joked they had two rooms and a path and running water, if you were willing to run to get it. I remember trips to the outhouse in the dark and being scared. Mother laughed and asked, do you think a wolf is going to get you? Would you like me to come with you? We often received a box full of used clothes, including shoes, from my Aunt Inga and Uncle Jack. As a child, I thought they were millionaires. After all, they owned a television set. Of course, they weren't real millionaires. One day, a big box arrived for us at the post office. Mother opened it to find sweaters, blouses, and men's sports jackets. I particularly remember a mustard color Mr. Rogers sweater. It had a hole in the front below the last button near the hem. At the bottom of this box, I spied a pair of size 7 AA width yellow suede ladies loafers. It was like Christmas, except it wasn't. The box held no frivolities, no jewelry or old lipsticks to play with. There were no jeans or workout pants. In the 1950s, women rarely wore slacks. To keep our legs warm in winter, we wore heavy brown-ribbed cotton stockings. If women or girls wore pants, we put a dress or skirt on over them. I'm not sure what my aunt was thinking when she included the men's sports coats. There were no men in our family. She knew my mother was an excellent seamstress who sewed for our whole village, so maybe she thought mother could repurpose them. I had my eye on the yellow shoes. I forced my feet into them, feeling a bit like Cinderella, or, to be truthful, more like one of her stepsisters. They were very long, very narrow, and reminded me of elf shoes, although they did not curl up at the toes. I can wear them, I said, my arches feeling the pain. Mother looked doubtful. She could see the size was all wrong for my size six and a half wide foot. I walked around the house with them on and knew in my heart of hearts I would have to give them up. I convinced myself I didn't like them. What would my friends think of me if I entered the classroom wearing yellow suede shoes? I went through a short list of pros and cons. Wear them. Do not wear them. In the end, I never wore them to school. I wore them around the house, hoping they would stretch, but they never did. But I always thought they were mighty pretty. 
Shoes are an expensive item for any wardrobe, back then and today. Mom ordered our shoes from an Eaton's or Simpson's catalog. She made us stand on a clean piece of paper. Then she drew the outline of our foot with a pencil and sent it off to the catalog people to figure out our size. Amazingly, it worked, and worked well. My mother was resourceful beyond words. She had no car to take her three daughters to the next biggest town to buy shoes. She was always inventive and overcame all obstacles which arose. She cut up some of the men's sports jackets into patchwork quilt pieces and donated others to the annual church bazaar sale. I got my spring coat at the bazaar. It was wine in color. Mom altered it to fit me. At first I was reluctant to wear it because I knew if someone in the town had donated it, they would recognize it. It would humiliate me. In the end, I wore it because I needed a coat. No one came up to me and said, I recognize that coat. I donated it to the church rummage sale. But I stayed away from wine-colored coats after that. Dolly Parton says it best. We didn't have any money, but we were rich in things that money don't buy. You know, like love and kindness and understanding. Our next story is by Donald Snyder called The Mystery of the Borrowed Coat. The day started like any other. I got up, cleaned up, and got ready for work. I go to the chair where I hang my coat and find a strange one in its place. I look high and low for it, but it's nowhere to be found. My coat is special because I just got it and know how much it set me back. My wife leaves for work at 7. I don't know until leave until 8, so I couldn't ask her where to find it. My daughters were both still sleeping. Takes a braver man than me to wake one, so I found a spare and headed for work. 8 a.m. I head to work pondering the events of the previous evening for clues. I remember putting it on at the bowling alley. It was cold outside. If I hadn't had my coat on, I would have noticed. Since I sat in my pickup for 30 minutes waiting to pick up my son-in-law from work before going home. I recalled taking it off and hanging it on my chair. So why is a strange coat in its place? The only answer could be someone brought my daughter home last night and took it by mistake. That had to be it. I'd call later when I was sure they would be awake. 10 a.m. I call my girls to ask if they know where my coat is. One doesn't and the other is gone. Figures. The one gone had to be the one who could have had a boyfriend snatch it by mistake. By now, I'm tired of trying to figure it out, so I figure I'll wait until my wife gets home. 3.30 p.m. I go home from work and water my trees. If you don't water them during a dry winter, they could winter kill. If that happens, the dog and deer won't have anything to kill in the spring. 4.45 p.m. My wife arrives, so I can ask if she knows where my coat is. She doesn't, but she agrees to look for it. 
Five minutes later, she comes outside to ask whose coat is hanging on the chair. I tell her it belongs to the culprit that has mine. She heads back into the house and returns, dangling a pair of keys. You don't suppose you might have worn someone else's coat, and he is still trying to get a ride, do you? Then she insisted I call the bowling alley. 5.15 p.m. I call and ask if a coat is missing. Sure enough, I have to justify my mistake. I go into the story of how I put on a coat and how it felt warm so I didn't realize it wasn't mine. The odd thing is the coats were nothing alike. 5.45 p.m. Tried to take the coat by the guy's home. Luckily, he wasn't there, so I took it by the bowling alley. Now, my pocket knife is missing. I wonder who I can blame that one on. Our next story is by Cindy Napa McCabe called The Infamous Holly Wilson. One day a few years ago, I received a phone call out of the blue from a little girl in London, England. It was quite a surprise, and her accent was so adorable. She told me she was a friend of my great-niece, Molly. That was also a surprise, as I wasn't aware Molly had a friend in England. Perhaps she was getting pen pals across the sea, as I did when I was a teenager. Molly was only nine. Holly told me Molly said I love to receive letters, and would she mind if she wrote to me and I wrote back? That suited me fine. We chatted about letters being a long-lost art. Holly seemed sophisticated for her age, which was the same age as Molly's. We began a short correspondence. She wrote for a while and told me about her family, her parents, and her younger sister. More often, she called. It was always fun to hear her accent and the certain English words, which were a bit different than what we were used to in the States. She came to visit Molly twice with her family. Once they were on their way to New Jersey, and another time Canada. However, I learned of the short visits too late, and Holly was gone by the time I knew she was here. Maybe next time, I hoped. In her first letter, she drew me a picture of herself, as she couldn't find a proper photo. I even copied it onto the return address label that I sent in my letters. Oddly enough, she had to use Molly's address in care of Molly to receive and send letters. Being an elderly great-aunt, I didn't question it. I was simply happy to have another person to correspond with. It was also strange how when she called, my phone showed Molly's phone number. Molly explained that Holly called her first, and then she transferred it to me. Since I'm not very technical, I didn't question it. Some time ago, I mentioned to Molly I hadn't heard from her English friend in a long time, and she told me Holly was in Australia with her family. The letters and phone calls soon dwindled. Holly became another long-lost letter writer. Or was she? Did I suspect Holly was in fact Molly, calling and writing? I might be technically challenged in my 70s, but by golly, I'm not completely dim-witted. I just love to play with Molly and Holly. I heard from Molly's mom once that Molly said, I can't believe Aunt Cindy believes I'm Holly. 
When I found a photo of a red-haired girl on the internet similar to the drawing of Holly, I copied it into a letter to Molly to let her know Holly had found a school photo. That floored Molly. Hey, two can play this game, right? I love to play with children when they can use their imagination. It's even more fun. So I played along for a few years. Recently, the phone rang. I I thought it was Molly or her mother calling me, but after my hello, I heard that lovely English accent again. Holly Wilson, did I continue? Molly had turned 12 a short time before the call. Not wanting her to believe I was a complete dimwit, I thought it was time to break the magic. Holly, I mean Molly, took it well. I did too. It was fun. I'll always remember the wonderful, unique, and imaginary Holly Wilson. We both will. Someday I'll share with you my emails to Shirley. That's how my niece Danielle spelled the name of the columnist, Acts Shirley, who I could write to if I had a problem. Imaginations, aren't they wonderful? Thank you for joining us for the Prairie Times. My name is Heidi Pate.